Welcome to the County Pulse. This podcast is developed by the Virginia Association of Counties and shares with our listeners the pulse of Virginia County government. I'm Katie Boyle, FACO's Director of Government Affairs, and your host for this episode. Our show today is sponsored by VML VACO Finance, your home team for local government financing and investments. So today it's my pleasure to welcome to the show someone who's no stranger to our listeners, Jim Regenball. Jim is an economist who has more than 30 years of experience with state and local budget and tax policy analysis. Earlier in his career, he served for 12 years on the staff of the Senate Finance Committee, where he worked on tax policy, economic and revenue forecasting, and transportation. He now has his own business, Fiscal Analytics, where he advises VACO, the Virginia Municipal League, and Virginia First Cities, and a number of other clients. Jim, welcome to the County Pulse. Thank you, Katie. What a great time to be here, too. We're at a a really interesting inflection point on the topic we're going to discuss today. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of economic news lately that I'm really excited to talk to you about. So um, let's just jump on in. So um, our members who tuned into the last show we did know that we're already starting to think about the next biennium budget. Um, so I want to kind of set the table with a sense of where we are now, because some of the actions that were taken in 2019 um, will affect the decisions that can be made in 2020 and beyond. So can you talk a little bit about some of the major underpinnings of the budget that was passed last session and kind of how it interacts with changes to the federal tax code? Sure, Katie. Uh, as I just said, this inflection point is still occurring. Uh, we had a lot of decisions to make. Uh, in the General Assembly and with the governor last year uh, with federal tax reform impacting Virginia really uh, the first time this fiscal year um, the General Assembly really split the the decisions into two parts one of it was on budget we had a, a, a large sizable surplus uh, in fiscal 18 that translated into fiscal 19's budget so we had an additional 1.6 billion dollars in revenues available during the last session to uh, spend on appropriations. But we also had impacts from uh, federal tax reform that added an estimated $1.2 billion that we've been dealing with off budget. And I'm gonna explain both of those a little bit. First, the $1.6 billion in the budget. Uh, The General Assembly decided to spend $835 million of that $1.6 billion in reserves uh, some of it was mandatory through the uh, Constitutional Rainy Day Fund, but almost $500 million of that 835 a little under, was discretionary reserves um, to, to bolster our liquidity in Virginia and to keep our, our state at AAA-rated uh, debt rating. Um, then we had to add $400 million to the Medicaid budget because it was under-forecasted the prior year. So as you can tell, that's a, that's a huge chunk of the 1.6 billion dollars in in, uh, sort of importance to local government only 85 million of that 1.6 billion was actually spent on additional k-12 even uh, taking into account the additional uh, salary increase uh, the two percent add-on to the three percent previously adopted um, and some additional at-risk funding and school counselors you've heard about what happened was there was also a negative. Some tex- technical reductions, lower student school counts, took away $140 million in spending. So the net 
with lottery money, the $35 million additional lottery money on top of the general funds was only $85 million. So hmm. really a lot of it did not go of that $1.6 billion to, uh, to new money for localities. Hmm. And now let's turn to the off budget, the $1.2 billion. Um, that was the estimated impact in additional revenues to Virginia due to federal tax reform. The primary reason for that was um, the federal government increased their standard deduction. They doubled it to $24,000. And then they capped the SALT deduction that you've heard. They capped uh, property taxes and, and income taxes at the federal level. Because Virginia requires taxpayers to use the same form if you take a standard deduction at, at the federal level, you had to take a standard deduction at the Virginia level and vice versa, itemized deductions. There was actually 600,000 tax returns that switched from itemized to standard deduction at the federal level, therefore switching at the state level. And that caused the bulk of this $1.2 billion because you had to pay, even though you got a reduction in federal income taxes, you had to pay more state income taxes. So what did, what did the state do in response to that estimate? Well, the money is, is coming in, and it's coming in in a good way in Virginia right now, as expected, uh, above our budget. And we are setting aside monies for an October refund of about $450 million out of that $1.2 billion estimated. That's biennial, by the way. The one point is a biennial number. And then we've, re so that should be expected for a $110 refund for individuals, $220 for married couples. That will come in in October. That's $450 million. Then the, the General Assembly, uh, late in the session, finally decided on further tax reform. They increased our tax, our standard deduction by 50% to um, 4,500 from 3,000 to 4,500 for singles and 6,000 to 9,000 for married people starting in tax year 19. That will cost, that will come out of our fiscal year 20 budget. Uh, and then the rest of the 1.2 billion uh, was. 200 million was set aside for further tax reform that will probably come up in the next session, the 2020 mm -hmm. session. And then they kept um, 230 million in estimated business tax changes out of that 1.2 billion. And so that's what the total is. And the one point, uh, the 230 million in business stayed in the budget. And so that could, that's going to stay in the budget down the road too. And so uh, local government. Uh, was hoping that um, some of this tax reform money from the federal government would stay for future efforts to restore funding to local government, for example, through K-12. And so that's how the budget this year was taken care of. Thanks. I think that's a really helpful overview because um, I think it speaks to sort of the what's uh, obligated sort of going forward. I want to ask you also about another sort of big tax um, reform, I guess, uh, that, that was enacted this year, which is the um, changes as a result of the Wayfair Supreme Court decision. And that was kind of a long time discussed and then finally sort of happened this year. So maybe you could say a word about that. Yeah, Wayfair uh, was a good decision uh, for local governments in, in that now uh, come starting July 1st, every retailer online or not is going to be required to collect uh, Virginia sales taxes. We already had a use tax. People were supposed to pay them. Of course, that wasn't happening. Um, what had been occurring, though, uh, prior to Wayfair is a lot of voluntary compliance by the large dealers. And so we were already getting 
a good chunk of money. The estimate for additional collections was approximately $150 million a year. Interestingly, we've seen higher sales tax collections in the last few months, and a lot of speculation is that is attributable to, again, voluntary collection, knowing that it's going to be mandatory come July 1st. They're doing it anyhow. Um, the second thing about the Wayfair money is that uh, uh, people were wanting to spend that $150 million. But we have a formula in place already where a large majority of the sales tax money already goes to specific places. It goes to either transportation through the 0.9% going into the tra transportation trust fund, the half a percent going to Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads that were, was enacted. Um, then we have a good chunk of the money already going to public education through the formulas. So all that was remaining was really about 2% was general fund unrestricted money out of that 150 million, which is about $50 million. And even that, uh, if knowing money is fungible, we spend 30% of our general fund on K-12. So you could argue that it was already going to K-12, the additional funding. So there really wasn't a lot of discretionary money available to spend out of that $150 million. Mm -hmm. And it's already coming in and sort of flowing through the formula. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know there was some thought in the past there would be a big windfall, but it does seem like it's just sort of being factored into the, the ordinary course of collection and distribution. So, right, right, yeah. Katie. Yeah. So um, looking at the state economy a little more broadly, um, Secretary Lane, the Secretary of Finance, briefed House Appropriations on Monday, um, and he seems optimistic about meeting the forecast for um, fiscal 2019. So what's your take on how we're sort of closing out the current fiscal year and, and what kind of growth do you think we can expect in the next biennium? Good question. And uh, I'm very, very optimistic right now. Revenues are, are coming in very well into Virginia. We've had 7.9% growth through May. We really need 5.6% growth to meet the 3.3% the, the budget increase plus the 450 million for refunds in October, that adds up to 5.6. So it's 7.9 through May is well above that. So it's likely we're going to get a surplus. My own estimate is that we will, we will finish out the year uh, in the next two weeks or so uh, over 7%. And so we're going to have uh, another surplus. Here's where it gets interesting. Uh, how much of that money coming in really in April and May and, and going to be June probably too was due to federal tax reform and how much was due to one-time increases in capital gains that because due to the lowering of rates at the end of tax year 18 and, and the, the way the stock market had grown and then fallen off in the last quarter people decided to sell and lock in the lower new federal rates at the higher end particularly and we do have evidence that that a couple thousand very wealthy Virginians paid a lot more. They jumped up and paid a lot of capital gains taxes. So the tax department is going to have to sort out how much of this windfall, and it's about 500 million was due to tax non-withholding, was due to capital gains, and how much was due to the new federal tax law changes described earlier, and. The importance of that is how much is one-time revenue and how much can we expect to continue to come in next year. Here's how next year is going to work, Katie. Next year is 
the, the, the budget that we passed in, in April, we needed to grow 5%. And because of the surplus, we're only going to probably need to grow only 1%. So that's great news. Uh, it makes it a really strong chance that we will make our fiscal 20 budget unless we totally fall off the cliff in non-withholding revenue in fiscal 20. I expect we'll make that. The real question is how much is going to build the revenue is going to build up the base for the following biennium, the 2022 biennium. And at this point, I would be conservative and say we're probably going to make our good chance we'll make our fiscal 20 budget just fine. I wouldn't count on a lot of a lot of uh, money going forward to expand the base, but we look like we're in good shape. Great. So also thinking about the next biennium, um, we know there's some sort of bills in the drawer, so to speak, um, some mandatory spending claims on the budget that'll have to be factored in. Um, so, so what are some of those major elements that'll have to be kind of taken off the top, so to speak? So I've, I've done an analysis sort of off the cuff of what we might expect at this early stage for the next biennium. We've already, we obviously still have a whole fiscal year to go, but we build our budget, remember, right starting really in the fall and the government introduced in December. So if we assume that fiscal 20 comes in as expected, uh, we have enough revenue, everything works out, um, and we, we have sort of average growth in the next biennium, and I call it 3.5% each year. Of course, that assumes no recession. That's always the wild card. I don't yeah. see a recession in the next year, but we're, again, we're two, three years out through the, the next biennium. But if you assume 3.5% growth and you don't make a, you know, an optimistic forecast on higher revenues in fiscal 20 adding to our base, we will have um, $2.5 billion or so available to spend. But then you've got to peel off rebenchmarking of K-12 I expect that will be uh, around at least six hundred uh, a million dollars. So you got to take that off. And then, if you assume Medicaid, which keeps growing, a uh, five percent growth on Medicaid—that's eight hundred million. So you can kind of do the math. That leaves you uh, one point one billion for everything else. And that's that's sort of uh, every biennium is different, but that's kind of an average, you know, amount available. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why we're in pretty good shape uh, for the following biennium is because in our fiscal 20 budget, we put in $635 million in reserves that we don't have to do, but the governor and the General Assembly would like to continue adding to that. We've gotten our reserves up to almost $1.4 billion, 5.5% of our general fund budget. The governor stated he wants to get it to eight, uh, get to eight percent of our budget, which would require by the end of his term that would require another six hundred million to go into reserves. So that's another priority that we keep hearing about. And if you take that six hundred million out of the one point one, that doesn't leave as much available for everything else. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of uh, the, the politics and the thinking that's going on uh, in our government leaders right now. Yeah, of course. You know, we would be looking at the that. 500 so million for some opportunities for the state to in invest more, you know, in the shared state and local programs, you know, so I imagine that'll be an, an ongoing discussion with the legislature and the administration. Um, so I want to kind of pivot a little bit. Um, you sort of touched on this earlier. I mean, obviously, the state economy is very much tied to the national economy, um, probably more so in Virginia's case than in many others. 
Um, we've had a very long period of expansion. Um, there's some kind of chatter out there about how long that can go on. Um, there's geopolitical factors at play. Um, you said you don't really expect a recession in the near term, but, but what is your overall sense of the strength of the national economy? Well, I think right now we're, we're in decent shape. Uh, people are expecting a slowdown from the 3% national growth rates, maybe down to 2%, but that's certainly not recessionary. Uh, I don't see any bubbles out there. That's what you really have to look for is, is asset bubbles. Think of uh, the 2000 uh, dot-com bubble, the housing bubble in uh, uh, the mid-2000s. Um, so you look for, for where business, you know, we're looking at for normal business cycle recession. And that's an overinvestment by businesses, and eventually they, they overdo it, uh, and then they pull back. Uh, interest rate sensitive sectors um, usually cause those kinds of things or shocks in the world economy. So, uh, you know, we can all think about what the, the possible shocks could be, certainly trade frictions, but that could also cut the other way. There could be a deal cut with China, mm -hmm. you know, there could be deals cut with Europe, you know, that may be the next shoe to drop, you know, of trade friction with Europe. Um, but there could be deals cut, and um, so we, those could go either way. The, the, when I said I don't see a, a recession in the, over the next years, because I don't see those asset bubbles uh, having occurred yet. And um, this this expansion is everyone calls it long in the tooth, but that doesn't automatically make it that we're going to have a recession because it hasn't been. Um, uh, extreme growth in any area that has been a fairly constant growth rate. And so, um, you know, maybe we, we don't see a recession. Um, you know, we can keep going longer and longer mm -hmm. with this expansion. And mm -hmm. we've got to look at, um, you know, government policy too. And, and we could talk ourselves into recession if we have huge trade frictions with people. And so business would quit investing. Uh, because of that, not knowing where, where, where things are headed. So we could talk ourselves in a recession, too. Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking at kind of the national economy, you know, there's a lot of data points out there. There's a lot of tea leaves to read. Um, there's the stock market. There's job growth. There's wage growth. What, what are the data points that, that you find, the economic indicators that are most persuasive to you when you're kind of getting your taking a global look? Well, I, I like to look at uh, employment first. And uh, wage gains, and, and and they've been healthy. The uh, particularly the canary in the coal mine would be unemployment claims, and those are still very very low. If you start seeing those are done on a weekly basis, if you start seeing that tick up consistently, consistently, then you start to worry because that's going to translate into you know lower lower overall employment uh, report on a monthly basis. So watch that. Uh, there's a lot of industrial production data, you know, of course, they, they're, the, so that's, you know, that can be used as a precursor, as, as sort of a, uh, you know, you look, look at, at a look ahead, um, and they've been moderating lately, um, so, you know, then you start thinking, I'm going to look at employment, you know, mm -hmm. if that's moderating, that's why everyone expects the GDP to sort of go down to the 2% from the 3% level. But in Virginia, you know, we look at, uh, I like to look at, and it's more of a coincident indicator, is, um, is withholding because that includes both employment and wage gains, and we get that data monthly, and we've been running at about 4%, which is good. That's, that's good growth. 1% employment, 3% wage and salary growth, 
So that shows Virginia's been healthy. We haven't, we, we've been seeing an, really an uptick in that, not a downtick. So that's some of the clues that we're doing okay right now. Um, one of the, the other indicators that people like to use is, is our interest rate inversion. And we've been inverted a little bit, you know, this the short the, the yield curve, the yield curve, right? Yeah. Short term rates are a little higher than long term rates. And if that goes on for a long time, that's been a pretty good indicator uh, of a recession one year to 18 months down the road. But we've got a strange world right now where we've got negative yields in, in Europe and in Japan, in particular, particularly. And that's driving people to want to invest in, in the U.S. long-term bonds, driving them down because so many people can't make money in Japan and Europe. They're putting it in the safe haven of the United States and actually mm -hmm. making still a little money. And so it's hard to know whether, whether that yield curve is really telling us anything because oh, of that. That's interesting. Yeah, well, so you've mentioned it's kind of a volatile world out there. What do you think that the state and localities can do, recognizing that some factors are kind of out of your control, um, to sort of position themselves to succeed in this economy that's increasingly globalized? Well, that's where local government's so important and their advocacy for education, because education is, is the key to a strong economy. And what I've seen for years is we have 20 to 30 percent of our children who are not, you know, coming out with the skills that we want, let's put it that way. And so st strengthening public education and then, and then as a corollary to that, workforce development as people have gotten older and, and getting the right workforce development in place, that's, that's sort of the key underlying basis for a strong economy. And you see as a really good example of that, um, and I thought we did a great job in, in Amazon in what, and some stories have come out recently. We really landed Amazon um, in Arlington because we um, highlighted uh, our higher education, strengthening our higher education and putting investment in higher education that they were very interested in. And that's, that's really the, um, the workforce development that and the ability to get good people, good jobs, I mean, the right kind of people in the jobs they want for Amazon that attracted them to come here. So for the long term, that's really important. Um, secondarily, and it, and it sort of flows from good education workforce development, is strengthen the flow of goods and information. It's an information-based economy, but we also need, have, need a good flow of goods. So we need, we need to concentrate on that part of our economy, you know, st flow of goods and information, too. That's where broadband, that's where, you know, very skillful people using uh, technology is important. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I'd like to highlight um, something I think Virginia is moving down the road, and that is uh, providing, and local governments are very involved in this, is, is strengthening regional cooperation. Because mm -hmm. if you look at, at the strong world economies, they're really regionally based. They're not nationally based, they're regionally based. And even in our country, uh, it's strong regions that attract uh, the synergies for, for a good economy. And it's because people agglomerate together and, and they bounce off each other and the ideas and the creation of jobs is because of, of people working together. And so that occurs in strong regional economies. That's interesting. Well, Jim, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, I really want to thank you for joining us today, sharing your analysis with us, and spending some time. So thank you. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see each other again on the podcast. Yes, this is an ongoing process. Glad to be here.